What's going on, everybody? It is Infinity Sports. I am joined by Sully. Jesse is on a camping trip, so it's just one co-host again today. You get the better one this time, though. Don't worry, folks. Don't worry. That, uh, he's pretty sensitive. I don't know if you want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you so, are lying. Sensitive Sally. I love him. So man. we are going to get get the ball rolling here. We're going to go with our video intro like we did last uh, around Monday. Actually, I always say last week because I'm not used to doing the two shows. Yeah, two, two shows a week, man. Uh, so here comes the video intro with the music, and then we will jump right into the show, everyone. This one's got a chance to get out of here. Gone! Three runs, Jimmy Jack. First big league home run for Mike Trout. Pass is intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. And an 81-point game. 55 in the second half. Ladies and gentlemen, you have witnessed the second greatest scoring performance in NBA history. All right, welcome to the show. I, I really think we could do our intro video as like just Kobe Bryant's entire 81-point game. Oh, oh, 100%. I mean, both of us would be okay with that for sure, too. Yeah, it's a really long intro, but, you know, totally worth it. <laughs> totally worth it. I mean, shoot. <laughs> uh, all right, so everybody, like I said, we're starting off here. We've got the two of us. It's me, Wayne G, Sully. Yo, what's poppin'? Uh, it's going to be a pretty great show today. We're very excited. Obviously, before we get into things, uh, as you know, you're probably watching us live right now on Facebook, and the show actually rebroadcasts tomorrow at 1 p.m. on the RTF Sports Network. That is Tuesdays and Thursdays, 1 p.m. We are live Mondays and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, so definitely check us out there. If you do miss any part of the show, you can download, stream, however you listen to your podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. I'm going to mention it. Every show will mention it. i got to change those dates. <laughs> the times. One of these days you'll fix it, man. One I'll, I'll fix days. it one of the days. Yeah, but so iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. I always prefer Stitcher because you can actually download the episode. So if you're – like whenever I would do iTunes and I'd stream it, you know, if I drive through an area that has a bad signal, then you know, I end up losing part of the skips or whatever. But that doesn't happen if you have Stitcher because you can download it while you're at work, You know, use their Wi-Fi, and then on the ride home just listen to it uninterrupted no matter where you drive through. You know, that's the way to do it. Always using somebody else's stuff, Wayne. I like it. Right on the coat tip, baby. Um, like you use now, mine. Oh, sure. Now we, <laughs> yeah. uh, we can be found on Facebook at Infinity Sports Podcast. You could be watching us there right now. Add Instagram at Infinity Sports Podcast and Twitter at Sports Infinity 5. That is a play on our Infinity 5 that we usually do at the end of the show. So definitely reach out to us. Hit us up with some comments, you know, questions that you have for us, things you want us to talk about. We're very open. We're very interactive. So we always uh, appreciate the fan interaction. Sully's frozen a little bit right now, but... Um... Big show today. I will keep talking while Sully's going. Uh, big show today. We are actually going to be. Yeah, I see you. Okay. Um, we're we have an interview today with uh, former NBA coach Scott Fields. He has his own podcast, the Scott Fields Coach Scott Fields podcast. It's a really cool basketball podcast. So if you like basketball, like me, I'm a basketball junkie. Then that's one of the podcasts you absolutely have to subscribe, like, and listen to. And he's going to join us, and he's going to talk some basketball with us. We're very excited for that. 
Yeah, most definitely. I mean, to get into a mind like that that's been around the game for as long as he has and been around so many levels and and so many different players and and obviously to the elite level, you know, that he was at with the NBA and under Coach Sloan and and working with the Warriors and things like that. And then over, you know, internationally as well, it's, it's just a real honor to be able to talk to somebody like that. Now, before we get into the interview and all of that, let's start with our favorite segment, the news. Oh, you almost synced it up. Oh, I almost did. Whoops, I hit something wrong there. God. There we go. <laughs> All right, so I'm getting better at it. Yeah, I mean, it's just coming from the edited show that was so spot on to now this is just kind of, it's honestly, it's a little funny. But, I mean, you obviously get the face-to-face interaction now. Sure. So the biggest news, obviously, this is really the the biggest news is college football. And I'll let you kind of lead up. You're the big college football guy. I mean, what's going on? I mean, it it just seems kind of, I mean, it seems we have this divide kind of along political state lines, too, at this point. Uh, You know, these northern states, uh, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have decided they're done. They're not playing football. Well, said till spring, at least. But uh, I mean, honestly, I think that's just delaying the inevitable. Uh, but then the Big 12 has come out and released their schedule now this same day. And the SEC it says they're going to play on and they have no reason not to stop. So it, it's really going to be interesting now because, you know, you've got a lot of these kids like like Justin Fields, who has expressed his want to continue to play football. And, you know, is the NCAA going to allow him to transfer? Are these guys going to be playing their separate schedules? Uh, it's going to get really, really interesting. And, and I'm excited to see what happens. I'm not going to lie. I think it'd be crazy interesting with Justin Fields in particular because they already gave him a waiver to not have to sit out last year and he got to play right away. So would they do that again? I mean, I mean, at this point, I think they'd have to give a, a, all of them special exemption waivers, you know, due to the COVID circumstances, I would think. If not, none of them are going to play. I, I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum. If I were a top 20 prospect at this point, if I were a first round graded prospect at this point, there's no way I play this season whatsoever, but a lot of them are going to want to play and and they should play. I mean, the big tone setter is the last three number one picks, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow going into the season. were not the number one overall pick. They arguably weren't even first round prospects. Joe Burrow definitely wasn't Kyler Murray. Maybe was and Baker Mayfield maybe was, but in either case, the season is what played them into the number one pick. So, I mean, that's what we're missing right now, and that's what we're going to be missing, I think, and that's a bummer. But, I mean, a lot of these kids are going to transfer and see if they can play if they can. I mean. Well, like you said, the number one pick is very much a uh, a product of what have you done for me lately. So I guess my question for you is Trevor Lawrence is the surefire number one pick. I think everyone has been saying that for the past two or three years. My question is, if he doesn't play, whatever reason the ACC doesn't play, something like that, he doesn't play, one or two conferences do play, is there potential for him to get kind of forgotten about and somebody else becomes the number one overall pick? Um, I mean, I'll never say there isn't of the potential because obviously I guess maybe it could happen. Like if, if Trevor Lawrence doesn't play and Justin Fields maybe does transfer and, and absolutely – like, let's say he transfers to, I don't know, Georgia or something like that. And I know they have Jamie Newman or something, but just as an example, <clears throat> let's say he transfers to Auburn because Auburn doesn't have a sustained or, or a, an in-place quarterback or LSU for that matter. And does the same thing Joe Burden. It does the same thing he did last year. But Trevor Lawrence doesn't play. 
Justin Fields has a chance to overtake um, uh, Trevor Lawrence. I really think he does. Uh, he's the only player I see that happening with, though. And that's a that's a crazy scenario. That's if Justin Fields has a Joe Burrow-type season and Trevor Lawrence doesn't play at all. That's really the only way I see that happening. But I'll never say never with the NFL draft. <clears throat> so do you think, I guess my question, because looking at it now, it's like all these conferences shutting down. I think we know the SEC said they're going to play for sure. Um, the Big 12, is said, released their schedule. Uh, so they're saying we're going to play, right? Um, yeah, so yeah. my question is, I guess, at some point, do you think it gets to the point where all of them call it quits? Or do you think that they're literally going to play, even though the other conferences aren't? <clears throat> well, I actually think the NCAA may come in here and step in. Um, and I really don't think there's any way there's football, uh, at least at the college, collegiate level. Again, like we were speaking about Monday, I just don't think they have the money for a loss for a potential lawsuit. Uh, the NCAA, uh, you know, let's say again, worst case scenario, uh, a number, a number, a top ten pick, Mika Parsons, you know, because he's a big, huge guy. Mika Parsons catches COVID and and gets this heart condition and is never able to play football again or god forbid dies you know what i mean like then at that point he sues the ncaa or his family like i just don't think they have the ability to sustain that kind of lawsuit whereas the nfl you know they had their concussion lawsuit they were like oh yeah we messed up here's a billion dollars to set up this fund now where you guys are taking care of during football, after football, whatever. The NCAA doesn't have that ability, so I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think there's football. And I think it's funny, too, to think that you know, we're talking about players' careers and could your career be affected by not playing. And the reality is these are schools, and the sport is an extracurricular activity. So in high school, there are high schools that aren't starting right away or that might cancel their winter season. There's you know, basketball players who have Division One scholarships on the line, and they're not going to play this winter because their high school is shutting down the the sports. You know, which because they're protecting the kids or they're doing what they think is the best interest. And with college, we're not looking at it that way as a school and an extracurricular activity. We're saying this is their job, like this is going to be their future earnings. And I think that, in a way, it's almost kind of like how we've lost sight of the fact that it is still just school. Well. <clears throat> Yes, and to be fair, I think this just accentuates the point more that these kids need to be getting paid, and and this needs to be run like a business and like an NFL franchise runs, uh, and the NCAA doesn't need to be running it. I think this is the time that these schools need to band together and realize, hey, look, we don't need this NCAA mogul hovering over us. We can do this by ourselves, and we'll be fine. And I really hope they do and they get rid of the NCAA because you hate it as well. I think especially on this show, it's the NCAA is probably the biggest villain of this whole show, I would think. Uh, and, and I think we both agree it's time for them to go. So, God, I hope so. All right. Well, we'll see what happens with college football. I know that um, I haven't really been paying attention to the hockey playoffs. You're the hockey guy. I'll let you go. Anything big hockey going on? We mean anything big. There was a five overtime game last night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was the fourth longest game of all time. Uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Columbus Blue Jackets. You know, again, this team just has history now at this point. I mean, we all remember what happened last year. The Lightning went into it with the best record of all time and got swept out of the playoffs by the eight seed. Um, so for them to now come back and play this game, we talked about it with some FBAS members. Uh, 
um, about how disheartening an overtime loss can be and, and, a, and a, an effort like that. And can you imagine losing a game after playing? It's essentially two and a half games straight because they don't play short in overtimes or anything like that. They're 20 minutes. So it's essentially they play two and a half games back to back. I mean, just nonstop. And then to lose, oh, it's so heart-wrenching. Let's see Mike and Mike and I were uh, talking about a super conference with NF, uh, not the NFL, the NCAA, kind of just the schools getting together and just saying, hey, let's form a, a super – that's quite a possibility. Uh, I, I, think. I think that's what they should be doing. I, I don't know if that's what they're going to do. Uh, I hope so. If, if if you can poach the teams that still want to play away from these other conferences, the issue becomes is they have contracts with revenue sharing involved with their conferences already. So I don't know what goes into that. I really don't. I sure hope so. Uh, I would love to see the Big 12, the ACC, and, and the and the SEC just join and and play one giant schedule. But I doubt we get it. Well. What most of you guys are tuning in for is our interview, and we are going to jump right into it. We have a uh, former NBA coach, uh, assistant coach, Coach Scott Fields, is going to be joining the show. As I mentioned at the start of the show, and I'll let him talk about it when we bring him on here, he also has his own basketball podcast, the Coach Scott Fields podcast, which he has guests on all the time, and it's just a really informative show. If you really want to hear the thought process of somebody who coached at the highest level, then that's definitely a podcast you should be subscribing to and listening to on your way home, downloading from Stitcher or whatever you want to do. So let's bring on Coach. Uh, hey, Coach, how's it going? What's going on, fellas? Wayne G. Sully, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate you. Oh, we're super psyched. Oh, hey, thank listen, you so much. I loved the intro that you guys had. Uh, watching Kobe Bryant walk off the floor. Uh, Devin Green is the gentleman who's hugging him after he had his 81 against the Raptors. And Devin played for me over in China, and we won a championship <laughs> together. So that triggers so many memories just to sit there, look at that stuff. And then your graphics. Do you have anything that can put some hair on a follically challenged guy like me? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not wearing a hat for no reason, Scott. I'll tell you that much, sir. <laughs> hey, all I know is, is I passed a road sign that says 30 miles to bald, and I'm going 120 miles an hour. So I'm going to be there in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> we really yeah, appreciate you coming on with us coach we, we really appreciate, appreciate it. you having me fellas this yeah. is great stuff man thanks for having me awesome yeah i tell people about the that 81 point game that uh, i went to high school with matt bonner he was uh two years behind me in the high school and okay. uh so when kobe scored his 81 i want to say in the cover of the sports section of usa today was a picture of matt bonner guarding kobe for however long he was guarding i thought boy that's a match mismatch right there no wonder he got 81 <laughs> <laughs> Jalen rose has to uh take about 45 of that oh yeah <laughs> Jalen rose is haunted by that 81 oh, for man. sure love it <laughs> that's awesome well like i said I mean, you got a, a ton of experience you've coached for over 15 years in fiba you know coaching with the utah jazz the golden state warriors the sacramento kings and i was curious if you could kind of just talk to us talk to our fans about you know your journey through the the basketball levels and then kind of arriving at podcasting and kind of the direction you're trying to take the podcast you know fellas uh Again, thanks for having me. I'm honored and humbled. And I, I've I've had a great career. I've been very blessed. Uh, I started off as a uh, high school Hall of Famer in the state of Indiana. And of course, if you follow basketball, you know that's that's pretty legit. So uh, 
had fun with that. And then I got into coaching at the college level uh, very young. And uh, many of the teams that we coached at the college level were nationally ranked. And at the tender age of 27, I took my very first head coaching job overseas. I took that job because I wanted to be a head coach. I wanted to put uh, philosophies and practices into play. And, uh, you know, it, it was just a great experience because, uh, you know, my my passport has more ink than a Sunday newspaper. And I just dated myself once again by throwing out a Sunday newspaper reference. So, um, yeah, just been humbled. Uh, you know, we had a near 780 win percentage in those 15 years, had won multiple championships and uh, have just had some great um, cultural experiences and uh, the, the levels that we played at. Um, I think of Lebanon and a lot of people don't think of, of Lebanon as being sexy, but they were in the top 16 in the world coaching in Puerto Rico. They've been in the world championships coaching in Venezuela. Uh, just man, more places on a map that have dots on it and places where I've, I've been able to put my fingerprint. So uh, just, just had a great time. And like you said, that little proverbial sip of tea of being around hall of fame coach, Jerry Sloan, who allowed me to come in and observe and consult with he and his staff. Um, that was just outstanding. Uh, it was just every day for me was a, a clinic. Um, it, it just, just watching a hall of famer at work every day and seeing how he dealt with the press, seeing how he worked with the players, uh, the, the tail never wagged the dog and he's that old school, tough mentality. And, you know, may his soul rest in peace. We lost him a couple months ago. And when you think of 1,223 wins, uh, with the franchise, uh, just phenomenal. And then, yeah, to be with Steph Curry uh, with the Golden State Warriors when he was just a rookie and then working with him again and, and being his head coach uh, at a charity uh, event here to raise money for people with disabilities. I, I've just been a one lucky guy. So to sit and, you know, use my podcast and my live stream show to kind of share insights and knowledge and allow that space to be a platform for other NBA coaches, NBA front office executive, NBA journalists to come on and, and share stories. I'm, I'm just a lucky guy. For sure. I guess what made you kind of think about getting into the whole podcasting thing? Like, it's were you listening to podcasts and thought I could do this? Let me let me try that. You know, it was uh, it was just kind of a natural progression because what happened uh, when I came back from coaching in China, uh, I actually met a young man here uh, in Utah. His his biological mom actually moved him from uh, South Central L.A., where his two uncles were shot and killed in gang violence. Uh, he was only 13 years old at the time, and I kind of took him on as like a mentor. And then a few months into that relationship, his biological mom came and talked with me and said, hey, uh, you know, I've never seen my son so happy as when, when he's around you. Will, will, you know, will you take him? And we did. So it's kind of like a blindside story other than it's not football, it's basketball. And uh, happy to tell you that our son that we adopted uh, is has just now signed his third contract to play professionally overseas in Europe. So to see where he's come from and where he's gone, being a positive role model and father figure for him is why I stepped back from coaching. And that's kind of when I got into uh, doing my show and just with COVID, we just upped the frequency of it and it's just really taken off and have gained, you know, over 5,000 followers, which we're honored to have. We grew that organically and uh, just, we, we have a lot of fun with it to allow people to come on and talk, talk about their journeys. 
Yeah, it's definitely a great show. I love watching it. Um, before Thank we had you. Have, come on, I was like, I'm going to watch a few of these episodes, and, and I really enjoy it. Again, anything basketball, I'm a basketball head. So anything basketball I love, especially with anything inside information almost, you know, I really enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, well, we, we had, you know, we had, when the last dance was being played with Michael Jordan, uh, his assistant coach came on, Coach Jim Clemens, who I'm great friends with, and then another front office executive, uh, Clarence Gaines Jr., uh, actually came on the show. So for them to share insights uh, about the last dance, because they they lived it and they were a part of it. And then, of course, Tex Winter was one of my close, dear friends. And uh, so, again, just to be linked and and know a lot of those guys as friends and have them come on. It's just it's just a lot of fun to, you know, sit back and allow them to talk and share insights and share perspectives. And now with this NBA restart, man, it's getting fun and I'm excited about it. So, man, whenever we can sit here and, and chew it up and talk some hoops, uh, you don't have to twist my arm very hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Cause I definitely wanted to jump in, and, and like I said, I've got a bunch of questions about your career and kind of your perspective on things. And uh, hopefully, it doesn't get too Charlie Rose. I try to keep it, uh, you know, pretty, pretty much the basketball. But uh, I guess my first question was: you said you mentioned it. you were around Coach Sloan for about three seasons, right? Um, and you mentioned it. he was a hard nosed old school basketball coach and in the nba for a long time that's what you had and there really wasn't a big differentiation between high school college and nba coaches and then over time that kind of hard-nosed general kind of faded away you've got more player-friendly coaches now like the brad stevens or like a stan van gundy or guys who get along with the players more they're not generals and i'm curious why that particular coaching style has faded away why doesn't that work with today's players you know, I think that's just more of an old school mentality. And that was just Coach Sloan's personality because as a player, if, if you follow the history of the game, he was very hard-nosed and tough as a player and as a competitor. Uh, you know, being number four there and, and with his jersey hanging in the Raptors uh, with, with some of those original Chicago Bulls teams, that's just who he was. He was, he was not fake. Uh, there was no facade there. He was who he was. And what the Utah Jazz did so well is they brought in players and characters that fit and matched that type of personality and character to be tough enough to be coached by that kind of character. And so it worked. And to think of the longevity that he had 23 years here with the Utah Jazz, again, to have 1,223 wins, uh, the way that he did here with one franchise um, is something that you don't see much of. Now, I mean, yeah, you see Coach Pop right now uh, there with the San Antonio Spurs, but there has to truly be a lot of synergy and connectivity, um, you know, with ownership uh, with front office and with coaching uh, and they all have to be on the same page and have the same agenda and that's what this franchise did well for years and uh, you know they, they got out of the way and let Jerry do his thing and they supported him and and that's why it works so well and so now when I sit and look at you know like you mentioned Brad Stevens and of course Nick Nurse who to me should be coach of the year this year seeing what he did with that franchise I got to coach against Nick over in Europe and uh, so it's great for me to sit there and see my friends have the success that they're having. I'm proud of them. And uh, yeah, it, it's just a new age. It's a, it's a new game. And that, that old style personality is not so much in the personality of these younger coaches. And even like myself, um, that's not really my personality where I'm more player friendly and, and, you know, kind of kind of take into a fact that I just want to empower the players that I'm coaching, but can it work? Yes. Does it still work? Um, if you have the right players in the franchise that, that fit that mold. Yeah, I tend to agree with what you're with 
pretty much everything you're saying. Uh, the whereas the the top of the the totem pole needs to be along with it. You mentioned Nick Nurse and Masha Ujiri and uh, Bobby Webster have done a great job in Toronto from oh, building it to the top. You know what I mean? And you know they don't have a top twenty pick averaging twenty points right now, and uh, the rest of their pretty much stars are doing the job, and and I think they've done a great job. Um, now you had a publicized fallout with All Star guard Deron Williams uh, at at, at well, Coach Fields and uh, Jerry Sloan. Uh, Jerry Sloan did. Yeah, my apologies, Jerry Sloan. Um, now, was there always tension there between the two? Was it from the start, or was it something that grew over the years while you were there and and you saw kind of boil over, or was there always tension between those two there? You know, it's more from the outside looking in perspective. Uh, you know, you always heard things like that going on and the local press covered it uh, quite extensively. And, you know, they would dig deep and then, you know, they kind of had their inspectors hats on. Uh, but, but what I saw from Coach Sloan is just a guy who demanded the best from everybody. He expected you to, you know, your, shut, your shirt needed to be tucked in, your socks needed to be pulled up. And he didn't care if you were the number one highest paid player on the, on the roster or if you were number 15 man or an injured reserve, he expected you to come give it and, and go to work. And I think uh, when you kind of compare generations and generational players, you know, coach Sloan had a John Stockton who was kind of like a Cal Ripken type player who never missed practices, never missed games, always showed up on time, winning every sprint. And I think that personality probably, spoiled coach Sloan a little bit and then he wanted and expected Darren Williams to do the same and be the same and it's just not you know you can't put a square peg in a, in a round hole so uh, I, I think maybe there was personality conflict that that was there that's that's been well covered and documented here in the local press but for me to sit there and say that I observed it or watched it I didn't but I just know that there was something there and you know to allow coach Sloan to rest in peace. I know that they actually did have a meeting after Darren Williams was traded away. And multiple years later, they actually had a face-to-face -face meeting. And I hear that they, uh, you know, ironed it out and, and, and worked things out. So I'm glad that both of them had their chance to say their piece before it was too late. And that discussion couldn't be had. But again, I, I think it's just something that um, sometimes personalities and there's going to be personality conflicts. And usually that's more, kept within the locker room and within the team uh, when it trickles out that's when you know you've got a problem because someone's leaking some kind of information so again um, you know it's just like a family you know not all brothers and sisters get along all the time you, now you still love and respect each other and you'll go to bat for them but sometimes you know you just competitive nature and you know people will butt heads and it happens it's natural but a lot of times it, it doesn't always get out uh, you know to the press that leaks things and hears the things. But I think when Jerry Sloan decided he was just going to step down, I think, you know, he was very honest. He was very transparent. He said, you know what, someday there'll be a day where it just comes up where I'm just, you know, I've, I've had enough. And, you know, in that February, uh, when he stepped down, I think it was just a time for him to say, you know what, he had had enough and it was time for him to pass the torch. And that's when Phil Johnson kept his loyalty, stepped down with coach Sloan and Ty Corbin took the reins and uh, was then named the, the head interim head coach. Um, you know, when Jerry stepped down. See, that's great. I, I had no idea that they had, met back up and kind of rehashed their differences. You know, I had a, I had a coach in high school that 
I couldn't stand the guy, but, you know, obviously, you know, 10 years later, I come to realize, you know, man, he was really just pushing me to be the best I could be. And, and, you know, that that's kind of how it is with most hard nosed coaches. And it sounds like that may have, would have been like the conflict and personality clash may have been there with Duran and, and, and Jerry. And so it's really good to hear that they were able to meet back up and kind of hash out their differences. Yeah, that was, it was big news in the local press out here. I still live in Salt Lake city. So, you know, for, uh, you know, the, the local newspapers to pick up on it, of course, now you've got social media. And social media wasn't as big at that time, so I'm sure it would be even more magnified. But yeah, they did. They had a meeting. They 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 laid uh, they laid it to rest and was able That's- to put things aside. So I th- I think it was a, an amicable an amicable visit, and and things were able to be uh, you know pushed away and said, you know what, bygones are bygones. It's water under the bridge. And you know what, uh, I really believe the Utah Jazz and what is now. Uh, you know, the arena where they play, what used to be the Delta Center, which is Vivint Smart Home Arena. There's a statue of Carl and, and John out there for Utah and what he did for this franchise. I really believe the Miller family, uh, hopefully they're in the works of doing this, but I think I feel like there should be a, a Coach Jerry Sloan uh, statue outside that arena as well, just as Chicago, oh, yeah. you know, it, like some of these great immortals uh, uh, and icons of the game. I feel Coach Sloan deserves that because can you believe 23 seasons, his greatness and his consistency, he was never given coach of the year out here. And it's just like, it's mind boggling that that never happened. Yeah, I definitely think that for me anyways, I definitely think of Jerry Sloan more synonymous with the Utah Jazz than I do Carl Malone or John Stockton. Um, So I definitely think he deserves a statue. I mean, you know, if you're going to give one to any coach, I mean, even Phil Jackson with the Bulls or the Lakers, I think Jerry Sloan to the Jazz is probably the, the most synonymous coach franchise i can think of in the, in the nba yeah just he was the face of the franchise for years and his his hard nose his toughness uh the, the way that again he held players accountable the way that he pushed them that's why they had that consistency for so many years and for me to sit there and be able to observe it and watch it and be around that staff i mean h- how lucky could i be so i was just thankful that he picked up the phone and allowed me the opportunity and brought me in to allow me to do that because here we are just two midwest guys i grew up in Indiana. He grew up in Southern Illinois. And I think maybe some of that was kind of a root and, and a personality that just worked. But man, it was just fun to see a, a Hall of Famer like him go to work every day. I always think when I watch uh, basketball, I always think, you know, everybody likes to watch and say, oh, in two years, that guy's going to be an all star or whatever. Right. We all do our own scouting reports. And one of the things for me being, I guess, at a basketball head playing since I was nine years old and just really loving the game with as much as I can love anything. And I like to watch games and I like to watch players and think, you know, that guy has a really high basketball IQ. He's got a certain demeanor about him. I think that guy's going to be a coach. And I try to spot it as early as possible. And I remember watching uh, Georgia Tech games because I love Stefan Marbury when he was at Georgia Tech. And they had Matt Harpering there. Matt Harpering later went on to play for the Utah Jazz. And I always thought that Harpering had that the way he carried himself and the way that he played the game of basketball. I thought he had head coach written all over him. Now he's gone into broadcasting, yes. but I mean, you were around him a little bit. Did you see kind of head coach potential with him? Well, he's obviously a great communicator. I definitely see him uh, with a niche with broadcasting. And he was part of our local broadcasting crew here with the pre and post game show. Then he also got to do some color commentary here with the jazz and, and he does a great job and he still stays here in the community. I know he and his wife are down in Atlanta, but um, you know, he would come back and run camps in the summer and, and seeing him work with those kids at those camps and the way that he communicated with them. Uh, 
I feel like, yeah, could he coach? 100%. But he's definitely found a niche as a broadcaster because he can also share insights from a player's perspective that kind of help the fan see, you know, behind the curtain, just as like what we do as coaches when we kind of pull the curtain back and say like a Hubie Brown when they get into commentating to hear it from a coach's perspective and a coach's lens. That's something that kind of intrigues me as well. And that's kind of things that I also do with my show. Now, you had mentioned you coached uh, with the Golden State Warriors uh, summer league team for several years, and you had Steph Curry's rookie year there. Um, now, player Patrick O'Brien, though, now he was on those teams, and he was a top 10 pick, and unfortunately, you know, didn't pan out into his probably full potential. Now, your opinion, obviously, because I'm not going to have you get into his head and things like that, but your opinion <laughs> on, on why a player like that, you know, doesn't end up becoming a star, you know, what was it about his game or his attitude that, that didn't ever translate? You know, it, it's a great question. It's a very fair question. Uh, you know, my time with the Golden State Warriors, uh, me growing up in Indiana and coach Keith Smart, legendary guy who hits the game winning shot for Indiana University to beat Syracuse. He's one of my best friends in the business and best friends in the industry. So for him to call me when I just got done coaching in Venezuela and said, hey, you know what? You know, can you come over here and help us out in the summer and be a part of my, uh, you know, summer league staff? Again, great opportunity. I was thrilled to do it. Yes, being around Steph Curry when he was a rookie. Looking at Patrick O'Brien is, you know, sometimes it's maybe just not always the perfect fit for an individual. Uh, you know, is, is it a mindset kind of thing? I, I can't go into that either. But I also look at two the team and the way that it was built at that time, did he fit the way that that system or that style or that coaching philosophy with the coaches that he was with at that time, uh, that could have been part of it. Um, you know, it's awful easy for a guy uh, to come in and you hear and see more and more of it where the press has kind of blown him up or, you know, they have super high expectations and they expect certain things. And sometimes a coaching staff and the player personnel staff, again, maybe not all in sync. And maybe when they come in, they're drafted and they, you know, now they starting to throw a player in and maybe his style and, and a play didn't fit that system of play or that philosophy. And the next thing you know, a player loses confidence uh, very quickly. Uh, th their egos are very fragile. They've been built up for so long. And then all of a sudden, for the first times in their career, you know, they're getting all this negativity. They're getting all this cynicism. They're hearing all the things they can't do instead of, you know, do this, do this, do this. And they just want to play their style. Um, that's kind of what happens with many players. Uh, you know, look look at Jimmer for debt um, and, and how he played in, you know, being at BYU and being being a big time scorer and then being, you know, out there with Sacramento Kings, where again, his style of play just didn't fit the way the Sacramento Kings philosophy was playing that time. So there's a lot of players that you can name that sometimes it's just not a right fit. And I'm just going to say from the outside looking in at a Patrick O'Brien, because I remember Patrick O'Brien playing down, um, in Latin America, he was doing a good job and was able to play his style where he kind of face up and have a mid-range game and use the tools in his toolbox and his skill set to kind of help. But now, was it at the NBA level? No, but he could still play. He could still make money. He could still, uh, you know, take care of his family with that kind of money. So uh, sometimes it, it's kind of harsh to say that a guy was a bust or it didn't work out. But again, it might have just been style of play with the philosophy that just didn't work for Patrick.
And I felt that watching Patrick O'Brien from the outside looking in, just as a, a fan of the game and just knowing the game, my scouting report of him coming into his rookie year was I actually felt like he lacked the athleticism to compete with an NBA that was evolving into a more run and gun style. And he's a back to the basket kind of big man. He was almost like a, a dinosaur before he even started. And so that was something that I kind of thought this guy is not going to translate into a good NBA player, even though he's a top 10 pick, because what he did in college, he will not be able to do at the pro level. Um, now, the opposite of that to me, though, is again, with the, those Golden State teams is Anthony Randolph out of LSU, yep. who had athleticism and buckets. I mean, he just tons yep. of athleticism. But again, another guy who's drafted 14th overall. Uh, so he's a lottery pick and just doesn't quite. I mean, again, I watched him play in college, and that's the guy that I, I made a mistake. I thought he was going to be a star in the NBA because of the way his game translated to the NBA game at that time. But he just didn't didn't hit that ceiling, you know? Wayne G, you're killing it, man. Your finger's on the pulse. Um, when he came out there, I was actually with those summer league teams when he was with us. And when I think of how we played, Steph was a rookie. Um, we were setting – NBA summer league scoring records. And then Anthony Morrow, who you talked about uh, Georgia tech a little bit ago, he came out there undrafted. And then, you know, he lights up and gets, you know, 43 points one night. And the next night, you know, Steph, you know, gets going for 30 some points. And then Anthony Randolph sits there and turns around and he has about 45 points in, in a summer league game. So seeing his game, but looking at his game, he was a little bit of a tweener because uh, you know, again, athleticism, physicality of of the style of play uh you know what types of positions is can he guard multiple positions from the wing and again it, it's it's tough to you know jump right in and fit that system and nelly you know he nelly loves small ball so for me to see anthony randolph go overseas and do the things that he's done in the countries where he's played again here's a guy making big money uh, you know winning some euro championships uh you know finding a niche for himself where he's having success i'm thrilled for him because here's a guy, long, lanky, you know, that lefty could, you know, could get it, had a quick release. Uh, it was fun to be around him and, and, and watch him play. And it's just too bad that he never really truly landed in an NBA situation. But here's a guy again who finds out overseas he can get paid and compensated very well for his skill set. And it's cash net money in hand. And all amenities are taken care of your travels taken care of, your housing's taken care of. It's cash net in hand. You find out, you know what, instead of playing 82 games a season in the NBA plus playoffs where you get 115, 120 games, you know, now you're playing 50, 60, which means you can double and have longevity in your career and yet still make good money. Uh, hey, some of these guys are doing it right because you know what? Uh, it may not have landed in the NBA per se, but yet, hey, you know, they're marketable and they have a niche and they they can play and make money and put money in their pocket for years and take care of that family for years as long as they invest wisely and, and take care of that money. Now, this is going to be a, a pure opinion question, and I, and I just want it because you've been a coach for a really long time, and so you've seen a lot of, you know, you've seen a lot happen. Uh, with a handful of exceptions, why don't college coaches, why aren't they able to come be good NBA coaches? Why, why, I, I just, you rarely see it and, it, and it it shocks me and I don't understand it. Well, you see Brad Stevens, who's doing he's, it. He's probably the notable exception. He's yeah. an Indiana guy like myself. Uh, but Danny Ainge, 
you know, Danny Ainge came and found him and pulled him out and talked him in uh, to, you know, being an NBA coach. But look at the resources that the front office and Danny Ainge was able to provide him and allow him to have those pieces where he can sit back and say, you know what? Here's our system of play. Here's our philosophy. He adapted to what those players did and did well. And it worked. Um, you saw Rick Pitino struggle with a little bit. You saw Calipari struggle with a little bit. But then again, look at the franchises where they went and the salary caps and salary cap issues that they had at the time where they couldn't be in control of the daily basketball operations or, you know, bring players in that fit their philosophies because of salary cap issues. And to me, that's one of the things that can be a bit of a struggle. So when they're used to having autonomy and control of everything within the basketball operations and be able to go out and land the recruits that fit their style and philosophy, there's a big difference between that and then how all of a sudden having a, a salary cap placed on you to where, you know what, now I can't go get the best players that fit my style and philosophy. Then they lose a little bit of that control. And sometimes that's very hard to accept when you don't have the resources right at your fingertips to have that success. But that's that's right away what comes to me. That's why some coaches, you know, hey, it's better for them and they have a good fit in, at the college level because they have autonomy, they have control, they can go out and fit the players, find the players that fit their philosophy, fit their style of play and get them all to buy in and they have success and they make great money at the college level. But then that transition to the NBA, sometimes it can be challenging, especially if you have other people with hidden agendas that you don't know about when you're brought in and you don't have the resources at your hands available, it, it can be a struggle for a coach. I'm, I'm really glad you, you had that answer. I'm not going to lie. That's, that's the same way I feel about why college and uh, football coaches don't succeed. It's you've got this, this, like you say, the autonomy, you control everything as a yep. college coach, you control who comes in, what comes in. And then you go to the NBA and you don't have that same control or, or you go to the NFL and you don't have that same control. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, it's a great question because, you know, you see it happen quite a bit. And then you see a, a, a coach's ego get in the way where they feel like they're going to have that control. And all of a sudden when they get there, they've got a general manager, assistant general manager. they got a player personnel guy. they got a guy ahead of scouting. And all those chiefs in the teepee, it makes it tough to say, you know what? No, this is what I want. Go find this guy for me. Go find this type of skill set for me. And then again, sometimes there's a hidden agenda. And maybe the general manager has a relationship with a certain guy guy who he would like to bring his own guy in so again there's things and there's snakes in the grass that a lot of times you don't know that are out there so you just got to do the best that you can with the resources that you have stay positive coach the guys up work with the players where they're at know that it's not about you as a coach it's about the players and developing them and having the skill sets and adding skill sets and then you know getting versatility you know when you put versatility in that portfolio you're going to have much more success i don't care if it's baseball soccer lacrosse water polo i mean you got it you got to go get the people that that fit your style and philosophy and have the resources to be able to do it it's just an honest answer but a very fair question i appreciate you bringing it solly I love it. Yeah, I think uh, one of the big issues with college coaches as well is a lot of time when a, when a college coach goes to the NBA, it's usually his first NBA coaching stint. You don't see a lot of guys that go back to college and then back to the NBA. It's usually this is their first stint. And I think a problem is a lot of the players, when you're coaching a veteran team, they've been around the general managers. They've been around the ownership. They know the ins and outs and the workings financially. They know how everything works. So to get somebody in who doesn't know anything and is trying to learn how to coach at that level – 
they don't respect that guy, and there's almost like a disconnect. And I think that one of the things that Brad Stevens was successful for is because he came to a team that was mostly rookies and second-year players. So they were growing up with him. And That's so right. now they're all five, six, seven-year veterans, but so is he. So now yep. he could bring in that six-year veteran and have that respect because he's had six successful years in the league. And I think that the downside of that was almost like if you look at Eric Spolster with the Miami Heat, I think Eric Spolstra is a brilliant, brilliant head coach. Great basketball mind. Great basketball and, Never gets enough credit. Wayne G, you're on it, buddy. Bring it. And I think that, you know, he didn't mesh well with LeBron and Wade and Bosch because it was his first head coaching job, and those guys had been around for a little while, and I think that there was that disconnect between the two of them that that team would have benefited more from a Phil Jackson, Pat Riley type, somebody who had that pedigree, than a rookie head coach. Even though Spolstra is a phenomenal mind, I don't think that that meshed well. The veteran player and the rookie coach, you got to have a rookie coach with rookie players. And I guess that's when my next question came in is because in a similar situation, if you could bring him into a young team, a guy that I love at the college level that I think could have Brad Stevens type success at the pro level is Shaka Smart from Texas. And I'm curious if you feel the same way. You know what, Shaka, great energy, great enthusiasm, great connectivity with his players, outstanding communicator, uh, definitely feel in the right situation as a right fit for him. Uh, he, he would have success. Uh, you, you love his energy and his passion and his purpose. And I think he does a great job with the college level because he has that youthful energy about him. I, I kind of feel it's, it's interesting that you bring up that name because that's the same way I coached in the same style and energy and passion that I had in all of my stops overseas where I'm chest bumping the players and I'm high five and we're just getting after it, having a good time and it keeps us young, but it's, it, it's the same way that I was. So when I look at Shaka smart, I'm like, you know what? That's a young coach Scott Fields back in the day when I had a lot more hair, but I love Shaka Smart. I love what he does. He, 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 I think, I think he does a great job because he is a game manager, just like a Nick Nurse. He does communicate well with players. He gets the best out of those players, and if you can let him have young minds to sit there and work with, I mean, another thing you got to look at, Wayne, is just like that money issue at the college level. You know, your head coach is making millions of dollars from the university, but they're also getting endorsement contracts and the student athletes, as the NCAA calls them, are being exploited and they're not making a penny. And then all of a sudden you go to the NBA, you're now the smallest salary in that locker room where these guys are making multi-million dollars and the coach maybe maybe making, you know, 750000 to $1 million, $1 million point, you know, $1.3 million. You're, you're the lowest paid man in that locker room. What are you going to do and what are you bringing to that um franchise as an asset are, are you a communicator can you build those uh, authentic relationships with those players and let those players know that you have their best interests and their longevity at heart that's that transition they have to make and they have to put their ego aside and say hey i'm here for you how can i empower you how can i serve you how can we help this team be better and then you got to build that culture and i think ashaka smart can do that very well a la nick nurse a la brad stevens a la mike malone uh, a la eric bolstra where they build that culture because you have to be able to you know it, culture is not just a sign you hang up on the window culture is something that you live by day to day with your daily actions and you have to support that and back that up every day and the coaches who can do that and the coaches who are the best teachers i don't care what level they're on what gender they're coaching if you can teach and you can communicate and you can get players to buy in that's a successful coach for you right there yeah see we get a. Uh... Triple Shot Sports is one of the other shows on the station. They're they're watching in. They said uh, this interview is great, so they're loving you. So. Appreciate you. Appreciate the love, man. Appreciate you. Peace. <laughs> now, Scott, 
we have a we have a big hatred for the NCAA on this show. Uh, <laughs> they're they're so reactionary. I, I yeah, feel well, I mean, yeah. Not ahead, only that, like you these aren't student athletes anymore. These are right. these 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 young these young men and women are making these schools billions of dollars at this Amen. point. See, I, um, I, I, they have to quit calling them student athletes. They're trying to brainwash them into to buying that. But come on, man, they're being exploited. We all see it. They've been reactionary for years. They're not progressive. They should have been in front of these issues for years, and they sit back and try to let things happen, and now all these investigations come up. Come on, man, I, I, I'm with you. I, I it, It's frustrating to see well, then you're probably going to agree with us on this take. What's your take on the one and done rule? You know, you got guys like KG, Kobe, LeBron. What's your take on the one and done rule? Should there be an age limit? Things like that. You know what? If a man can go to war and fight for his country, he should be able to go hardship and provide for his family. Now, here's the thing. The names that you just mentioned, Sully, you mentioned a LeBron. You mentioned a Kobe. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, Kevin Garnett. There aren't very many of those special generational type players. Most of the players who come into the NBA right now who are in this AAU culture that basically they just, you know, jump from city to city and they play, they play so many games there's, there's not enough time on player development. So mentally, physically, spiritually, they are not ready for that game. Um, the game is very physical. I mean, there's 82 games in a regular season. Uh, you know, a college game is, you know, college season is only 30, 33, 34 games a season. That's a lot of pounding on a body. And if you haven't, you know, if you don't have proper nutrition, if you don't have, uh, you know, weight and strength and conditioning to maximize your body as an asset and take care of your body as an asset. That's why you see some of these young guys that are having so many injuries at a young age because their bodies are still growing. They're still developing and come on mentally, they, they're not even maturing yet to be ready to, to handle that grind because you take a guy from the inner city in the streets that has never made a dime. And all of a sudden you throw millions of dollars at him and these huge shoe endorsements. Now, not only are they trying to play basketball and try to manage their time and be better players. Now they've got all these people coming at him, you know, wanting money, needing money, wanting to open up businesses. There's a structure that needs to go and kudos to the G League for opening up an opportunity for the G League for these players to go in and give them a gateway. But for even for me, though, even in that G League, they've come a long way and the salaries are getting better. But still, Take a guy from a blue blood school, Sully and Wayne, you, you look at the Dukes, you look at the North Carolinas, you look at the Kansases, you look at the Indiana universities, you look at the strong East Coast. Wouldn't you rather be on one of those teams for years where you travel first class with, with great uh, flights, you, you're in the best hotels, you have amazing facilities and workout facilities, or would you rather jump on a bus and travel for 16 hours and have a $35 per diem? There's a big difference in that. So why not, why not enjoy that college experience? If you can, get as much education as you can. But if you're going to make that jump, I mean, look at Brandon Jennings back in the day. He goes over to Italy. Look at Long, Long Ball, Young Ball this year who had a great year over in Australia but still had a bit of an injury because, again, this AAU culture and grassroots culture, they don't take care of the players enough and they don't spend enough time on player development. Now you see all these NBA benches with six, seven NBA player development coaches so they can teach and learn the game properly because the game gets so diluted and saturated with young players who aren't ready to be in that be at that level so the nba gets hurt the ncaa gets hurt so it's still the greatest game in the world but yet there's still 
the system is still fractured. They still need to, to fix that fracture. Yeah, for sure. I actually, the, uh, the, the question I want to get into with you next, actually, I kind of want to start getting into your, your FIBA background and the, the coaching internationally. And, uh, obviously the, Knock on international players. I just look at the evolution of them from like a Detlef Schrempf and a Drazen Petrovic, right, who are great shooters, to even like an Andrea Bargnani, who was a first overall pick. But really, the MO on European players was they can shoot and they can't do anything else. And now you're seeing players like Luka Doncic, who's completely flipping that up on its head. I mean, in your expertise, I mean, what have you seen in the evolution of the European basketball player? You know, I was coaching in Europe when a lot of those European players were first coming over. Uh, I can remember coaching Carlos Arroyo when he was only 17 years old at Fajardo in Puerto Rico. And then he, he has a great NBA career, but he was only 17 years old. I remember Manu Ginobili when he was in Argentina. I actually had the same agent as he, he had with interperformances with Lucky, uh, Luciano Capiccioni. Um, Arvita Sabonis had him, Peja Stojakovic, Tony Kukoc. So some of those great players before they ever came over to the NBA, I saw them and, you know, watch them play. And, you know, sometimes the agent would ask me, Hey, Scott, what do you think? And I'd be like, Manu Ginobili. Oh my gosh. Are you looking at that explosive first step? Are you looking at his creativity and the way he finishes by the rim? Are you seeing his ability to be able to create shots for his team? And you saw what he did with that Argentina team. So I look at some of those and it, it, it astonishes me to hear the press say, oh, my gosh, who is this Luka Doncic? I'm so surprised. Come on. When he was over in Europe, he was the MVP of the Euro League finals. So how can that surprise anybody that he comes over and does the same thing here in the NBA? If you did your research, if you've done your scouting, kudos to my buddy, Donnie Nelson, who actually sent me to China to coach. Uh, you know, for his international context, because he knew what he was doing when he brought a Luca. And now to put the zinger Porzingis with him, you saw how competitive that game was last night uh, with, with the Portland Trailblazers. And my goodness, those kids are fun to watch. But what was so interesting to me, and I know this is a long winded answer to your question, but those European players used to be labeled as soft mentally. That wasn't the case. The 92 dream team that came over who globalized the game and it had, you know, the Michael Jordans and, you know, magic and, and bird and all those players that players wanted to aspire to be like them where, you know, we had that all presence. We're like, Oh my gosh, they're the Americans. They're the best definitely the best team ever put together where they're actually posing for pictures to be with them. Now they know like, you know what? We're just as good as them. We can compete with them. You look at the Spains and the Gasol brothers, you look at the talent that has come over. They've always had great work ethics. They've never had entitlement. And when American coaches would go over to Europe, even though they had more of a cerebral game and a finesse game that didn't high flyer playing below the rim, they were so so well drilled fundamentally that fundamentally they could play and they get that through their club programs where you know they start off very young and some of those guys are playing professionally at 14 years old and are playing against guys who are 30 years old so they're already well groomed because NCAA players are playing against other 18 and 19 year olds and all of a sudden now they're going against you know mid 20 year old guys who are physical but those European players have already been banging and playing against those guys so they know how to get their shot off they know how to bump and create space they're cerebrally they can spread the floor and to, to play with that pace and space that they have now. So for me, not surprised at all. I've seen it. I've watched it. Uh, I just wish that grassroots level basketball here in the States would pick up their fundamentals and work on ball mastery, ball handling, passing, shooting, uh, mechanics like they do in Europe, because that's why those European players and South American players and Asian players do so well in the NBA today. And look at the San Antonio Spurs that built their franchise around 
European players and let them play their style of game. And look how they had ball movement and continuity. Mike D'Antoni, eight seconds or less uh, with, with Phoenix, coached and played over in Europe. So that European influence is heavy into the States, and that's why some of the better teams with the European influence have more success right now. Yeah, I've, I, I, I'm again. I'm gonna have to 100% agree with you, Scott. I, I'm I'm a probably Luka Doncic's biggest fan in the whole world, and when he was coming into the draft, I, I said I would take him over any other player in that draft simply because he had been playing with grown men for two years now. So he's and played it at an extremely high level, won the MVP like you mentioned. So he's going to be ready to play now. As with your time in FIBA and things like that, would you say the cerebral part of the game is the difference between or the biggest difference between the FIBA and the NBA game? Well, the biggest thing with the NBA game, the American players, they're so athletic and they play so much more above the rim. And it's a very quick pace where in Europe, it's more of a power finesse game where they're very cerebral with their skill sets. And they know and understand and have a feel of the game where the young players in America don't have that feel of the game. And they just relied on their athleticism at a young age before they got to the highest levels where the European players, they've competed against men and banged against men. So when you hear people say, uh, Luka Doncic, you know, he's the next Larry Bird. Well, you know what? Their games are similar. They're both fantastic scores. But then I hear people say, well, Luka Doncic is so, so he's not slow. He's just a six, nine big bodied frame. Who's doing the same step back move who with optics looks to be a bit slow, but yet he can bang, create the space, give you that step back and then still drop a triple double on you because he can also create for his teammates and penetrate pitch, rotate, swing it. He sees the floor with savvy. So to me, that's what I like about him. So for those guys who sit there and say, you know, Luka Doncic is slow, uh, he's not athletic, um, I'm not buying that Kool-Aid, baby. Oh, no. <laughs> well, we've definitely talked about you know, the young player coming to the NBA and, and, and what that challenge is. And we've talked about the European player and the challenges that they face. One of the guys that I bring up is back in 2003, I remember hearing reports that Darko Milicic could be the number one overall pick, even ahead of LeBron James, you know, the chosen one. He ended up being number two. He was ahead of Wade and Bosch and, and Carmelo Anthony, which is always going to be held over his head. Um, I worked with a gentleman who had actually uh, coached uh, over in uh, Croatia, Yugoslavia. He had coached uh, Vladimir Radmanovic, um, and he'd said that he was talking to his coach's friends overseas, and they were telling him, like, Darko Milicic is not even, like, one of the top ten players, like, in our league. Like, I don't know why you guys think he's so good. And then he went two overall, and I'm curious if, if that was really the case, if he really wasn't that good and the media just blew him up, or if maybe he ended up in a situation uh, with Larry Brown, who hates rookies, you know, and that kind of stunted his growth as well. Well, I think you you hit it on two points. Great, great point there. Again, we talked about it earlier. You have to bring in someone who's the right fit to your system, philosophy, and style of play. Now, I think Darko was built up so much, and I felt like they brought him in on potential, but potential is good enough to get you beat when you have to produce. Can you produce? If you can produce, boom, you, you fit right in, you get it going. Larry Brown, you know, had, had a philosophy. He had a style. He's won everywhere he's gone. So how can you question that? Darko, did he fit that style? Not quite. Did he fit the, the philosophy? Not quite. Did, did they allow him enough time to develop? But again, you take a young kid 
who's had all these positive things happen so long in their career and all of a sudden for the first time in their life they're thrown into an environment where you're getting negativity and cynicism that ego is so fragile and if you can't put a support system around him that's why you see a guy like that slip through the cracks but um yeah i think that's where they they made a mistake and drafted on potential because they were worried they're going to miss out on the next great thing from overseas and maybe the people who thought that they were making those assessments were, were trusted. Uh, they probably should have dug a little bit deeper and dig into the character, dig into the mindset, dig into the philosophy. You know, that's why these NBA teams now have, a, you know, psych, sports psychologists with them where they put them through these tests to see what kind of character and psyche that they have that where hopefully they, they limit the mistakes on potential like that. But if, if you bring a guy in on potential, like I'm saying, it's good enough to get you beat. And, and all you're going to do, it's going to be a lose-lose. Lose for the franchise and a loss for the player because now you've got a guy who when you brought him in, his shoulders were back and he was ready to go. And after months and months of hearing you're too slow, you don't fit in, you're not able to do this, you can't do this for us, you see that body language go down, the confidence goes down, uh, the, the morale goes down, boom, he doesn't fit in. Now you have to go find a place for him and, and a place to land. So it was just – it was just – Poor judgment and a poor decision based on potential. Definitely. And I think before I actually, before Sully has his question, I guess that kind of made me think of a question. So this is maybe an outlier. Actually, it is an outlier, but I look at Jermaine O'Neal, right? So Jermaine O'Neal came in out of high school. He yep. was a highly tutored, uh, you know, and uh, prospect, and he comes in, plays three years or four years, whatever it was, with the Portland Trailblazers, averages two points per game for, th for three seasons. Yep. And he goes to Indiana, and he's an all-star. Yep. And so that's one of those situations. Again, we get a young kid coming in. He was the youngest player ever to play in an NBA game at 17 something. And right. then he actually, you know, get, he's getting hammered. You're only averaging two points a game. You're playing against veterans, getting beat up every day. But somehow, like I said, when he got to a different situation, it didn't continue. He rose to where he could be. You know? Yep. Yep. Well, I think, I, I think we've kind of brushed on it, but you look at, basically three years in that Portland Trailblazers banging on some great players and being like an internship for him. Think about that. So here's another kid who came out of high school, jump goes into the NBA again on potential. And then he gets a three year internship. And then all of a sudden his fourth year, which would have been like his senior year in college. Now he's got some physical development. He's got some development with him as far as mentally, he knows the game, he knows the systems. And all of a sudden you find a coach who says, Hey, I know what he can do. I know what skill sets he can do. And a coach puts him in a position to do what he does well and lets him play to his strengths and see his assets that he brings. And then you, you continue to develop him and, add skills to us. I mean, you see his confidence rise. You see him fitting into his system. You saw how great he fit into Indiana and the, their style of play at the time. So again, look at some of those players who come out too early. If they have two or three years where they can grow and develop um, physically and mentally, they're going to be a better fit into certain situations. And you can make a better assessment and a better scouting report on a young man because you, you can't, you can't, test a man's heart. You can't test a man's mentality. Is he going to have the right mindset to focus and block out white noise where, you know, Steph Curry had the same thing, but look at the support systems that were around Steph Curry. When I was around him, there was a lot of cynicism. There was a lot of people saying, okay, he's not really a true ball handler. He's not a true point guard. He's too small to guard the two, but he blocked out the white noise. He focused on what he did and he kept working on in the gym and working on that quick release and saying, okay, this is what I do. And this is, 
you know, how I'm going to fit in. And all of a sudden his selfless mentality where he knows if I take less money, then I can surround myself with players who can do the other skill sets. Boom. There's that culture. And then now all of a sudden you have success with the Steph Curry because he had the right mindset. But some of these guys come into the league and they're so entitled and they think it's all about me, 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 instead of we, we, we. If you can think about we instead of me and get over the complacency and block out white noise and cynicism, they're going to have a much better chance because you have to be patient. You cannot be entitled. You have to be able to, to focus on your grind and work on your skill set and develop, get physically stronger, um, learn the game, learn the angles, learn a system. And once they get comfortable in that, then things can take off when that opportunity comes for them. Now, You've mentioned uh, AAU basketball quite a bit, and I have a buddy down here. Now I'm here in Tampa, Florida, and and I have a buddy down here who's a who's a high school coach, and he has expressed his opinion to me that the AAU game is kind of ruining high school basketball, and um, a lot of these kids now are just sticking to their travel teams and going and playing these other big travel teams and getting more exposure that way. Um, do you think the AAU game is, is hurting basketball or, or do you think it's helping? What's your opinion on, on the new travel basketball style that's blowing up? I can look at it through two lenses. My generation grew up where high school basketball was everything and we didn't have travel basketball. I think you can take the pros from travel basketball where you can use it as a measuring stick to see where you're at against other top talent in the nation. But I think you still need to have time spent on player development. I think you still need to be able to be coached and be held accountable. And I, I don't think enough life lessons are being taught in AAU grassroots basketball to where you, you talk about dedication, you talk about commitment and sticking with the team. Just because you don't get enough playing time here, you jump ship and jump on another travel team and go play with that team. And all of a sudden, then that team doesn't work out. Why do you think you're seeing 430 some players in the transfer portal every year? Because this AAU culture is not teaching those lessons of commitment and sticking to it. Michael Jordan gets cut his, his, you know, young in his high school career. He didn't quit and move to another high school. It taught him to work harder, to work smarter, to be more competitive and try to figure out a way to be successful. So I, I know that's one my major example, but I think there are strengths that can come from AAU basketball if the coaches who are coaching AAU basketball do it for the right reasons and make it about the players and player development and not just the next endorsement deal. That's where I think AAU basketball misses it because I think AAU basketball is great to allow players to play against other top players in the nation or other mid-level players to see where they're at and test their skill strengths. Because in, in high school basketball, you're basically just playing against the same guys all four years and you can't really test yourself. But in travel basketball, you can do that. So I'd like to see them kind of take uh, a hybrid form of the best of both worlds and yet, you know, yeah, in high school, you may have a math teacher who's your coach. So, you know, is that really helping you? Can some of these former NBA players or NBA coaches go give back to the game that was so good to them and be teachers and teach life lessons? That's when I think you have a win-win situation. So I'd rather see, see them take the strengths of both systems that are positive and make something that is a great model for the players, for the teams, for the coaches, for the communities, and, and teach those life lessons that I feel are so vital that our society is sadly missing today. 
Yeah, I, uh, we talked about it a little bit before the show started, which was uh, I mentioned our guest uh, on Monday, which has been postponed, was supposed to be uh, Ronnie Fields, uh, Kevin Garnett's teammate at Farragut Academy. Uh, right. You had coached in the CBA for the Utah Eagles, was it? I did. And I, did. I think at that, at that time he was playing for the Minot uh, Skyrockets. Uh, yeah. Yeah, might not. And uh, Ronnie Fields actually led the CBA in scoring two years, led in steals, I think, a couple of times. And I'm curious if you remember him at all as a coach, remember seeing him at all. Come on, we share the same last name. We just don't share the same pigment. <laughs> <laughs> that, boy, that boy could play. And I don't care what you, what you say. That's another guy that just because, you know what, he was too small to play in the NBA, but yet look what he did in the minor leagues for years. Here's a guy who could flat out ball and get buckets and, you know, lead a team and be a scorer and be a threat. Uh, it was fun for me to coach against him because we had to be creative on different ways than where we tried to keep him off balance and get him to force shots late into the shot clock to where he would be uncomfortable. So that way, hopefully his percentage wasn't going to be as high. Our actually our first game was against coach Chris Dalio and Minot Skyrockets. And we actually came back from 20 points down and won that game. So I'm sitting there when you say that name, I'm like, oh, I, I remember him well because, man, he would give coaches nightmares because, man, he was a walking bucket. That's so amazing. That's so cool. All right, let's get nostalgic here, Coach. Let's do it. All right, in all your years, what's your what's your best victory, man? What's what's the one that stands out to you? Maybe not your biggest. It may not be a championship, but just the one that stands out to you is like, man, I'll I'll remember that that victory, that moment forever. You know what? There's there's a handful of those with multiple championships that we won. But I think, again, I mentioned Beirut, Lebanon earlier. And and you know what? They're, they're going through some political things right now, just as they did when I was there a decade ago. But winning a championship um, in Lebanon, I came in. Let, let me let me let me kind of lay the lay the groundwork for you. I came in midseason and replaced a Serbian coach, an Eastern Bloc coach who was very military. And again, here I come in, energy, enthusiasm, aka chest smart, chest bumping, high, <laughs> so doing push-ups when we score. You know, just being crazy, getting behind the players and having fun. But I'm in a country where my team was a Muslim-based team, and the seven-time reigning champion was a Christian-based team. The president of the country backed the Christian-based team. The prime minister of the country based was backed in our Muslim team. So you had sport, religion, and politics. And they actually lined the game, lined the courts with security with their green berets and their Uzis. That was our security. We won that championship that year by coming back and winning on a neutral court because a fight broke out the time before where the crowd came down and there were 7,000 people and everybody's beating each other up over politics. And for us to win that game, I remember they put us up at the Radisson Hotel. They carried us on their the fans' shoulders for like four hours, like a beach ball. And it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal environment where our home court was like Cameron Indoor, like Duke, where the, the it was first come, first serve. It was general admission. And I mean, just dancing and hyped and chanting. And I'll just never forget that because those who couldn't come into the Coliseum for the games, there would be 4,000 people outside the Coliseum watching on a big screen and waiting for us to come out after a victory. And it was just a great environment, a lot of fun, and uh, arguably probably one of the best players in all of Asia was there in Lebanon, Fatty Khatib, to me, 
was just as good a player as what Yao Ming was, even though he was the number one draft pick by the Houston Rockets. Here's a 6'6 guy who carried his national team for years and represented them in the Olympics and World Championships, who never got to be in the NBA, even though I brought him over. And the Clippers actually offered him a, a contract, but his local team uh, was suggested not allow him out of his contract. And that was a big miss for the NBA because he was a bull. They called him the Tiger, and that guy could flat out play. So when you take high-level local players like that and sprinkle in some former NBA players, I had a former San Antonio Spur, a Nigerian national team captain with me. I had Ace Custis, who played uh, with Virginia Tech, who was with the Dallas Mavericks, who was with that team. And, man, we had a fun, entertaining style of ball. And I'll never forget some of those wins because, man, growing up in Indiana – that's what that passion felt like being in the Middle East where basketball was the number one sport and not soccer. And those fans just absolutely loved the game and was kind of a respite and a reprieve from the, you know, the social unrest and the civil war that was going on around them. So basketball was what basketball and sports is to our culture when we can actually have that entertainment for us. Such an amazing story. Wow. That's, that's, I mean, that's such an amazing story, man. That's incredible. That's incredible. But I can also remember winning a championship. We won the Asian Cup, and I was coaching in Saudi Arabia, and I lived across from the Osama bin Laden family compound, and us winning a championship there, it was the first time ever in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia that they won outside of the kingdom. So I got to go meet King Abdulaziz, Prince Fawad, who was the head of the sports industry, the, the sports interior industry. So to go to the king and go to the castle, get knighted after a big win, I accidentally dapped him up and the security guard stood up. But I was like, hey, this is what we do. This is my culture. King Abdulaziz just nodded at me. Congratulations. And I was like, yeah, baby, we just <laughs> so uh, you know, if, if you weren't on a Mercedes, you were riding a camel out there, but it was still a great place to win a championship. <laughs> God, that's amazing. I know uh, this one's kind of a nostalgic one, too, kind of taking you back. I was just thinking over the years, I, I've coached youth basketball, and I know that um, as a coach, I get very excited about certain players in the way that they see the game. And I had a player on my team uh, several years ago who, um, Basically, we had this game plan to run an offense. We'd run like a, we had a one-three-one motion offense that we ran uh, against teams, and uh, he understood the offense uh, really well as he was our point guard. But basically, the first three times down the floor, he drives and he gets a layup, and we're not really moving the ball. Um, and I we call a timeout, and, and I'm talking to him, and I was like, Jim, Jim, why are you driving the hoop? Why aren't we passing around? We've been practicing this all week. This this one-three-one. He said, Coach, listen. Um, if I score right away three times, they're going to put the best player on me, and then Billy is actually going to have a height advantage over the kid that is guarding him because he's guarding Billy right now. But they're going to have to put him on me if I score right away, and then Billy's going to score like 10 buckets in a row. And I remember just giddiness, <laughs> like excitement. <laughs> and I'm curious, in your time coaching, you've coached a lot of players at a lot of different levels. Who is your favorite player that you've had the privilege of coaching? Oh, it's a tough I bet. I've I've been around some unbelievable talent. I've been around players that, you know, represented their countries at the Olympics or represented their country at the World Championships. I've dabbled into the NBA. That I mean that that's like asking a dad who's your who's favorite, favorite child. <laughs> so I mean it's like you know can, can you really, you know, pinpoint it but you know, to say that you've coached a Steph Curry, who is, you know, a unanimous MVP in the league, someone who's transformed the game, and now the game is played different because of him. 
you have to say that's something super special. Again, I was just blessed and fortunate to be around him. I learned as much from him as, you know, he may have picked up from me, even though he was coachable. And I appreciated him coming to me saying, hey, coach, you know, what do you think? You know, where, where, where should my feet and shoulders be? You know, when I catch that ball coming off that screen, just like you, Wayne, when you were talking about your boy, Jimmy, um, great players make great coaches out of us in a hurry as long as we get out of the way and don't overcoach them. So I feel you. And I love hearing, hearing that story because if you have a player with a high basketball IQ, that's another set of eyes for you as a coach. And if you're smart as a coach and you listen to your players and you still put them in a situation to be successful, man, that's when the that's when the rubber meets the pavement and things take off. And all of a sudden you start having wins and it starts getting sexy. So um, <laughs> it, it's a lot of fun to, to have that. But um, I think about great players that I had overseas and, and maybe guys that um, are not big names or never made it to the NBA, like Fatty Khatib that I told you about in Lebanon. But I think of a young Haysler Giant who was with uh, with the Venezuelan national team. And when I came in and took that team with Guados de Lara, uh, you know, we actually we had an owner who was like a Mark Cuban who was just very ambitious. And I was excited to go down there and work for him. And when I saw this point guard working out, I went up to him and I said, Haysler, I said, I have a vision. And I said, if you work your butt off and you meet me halfway, you're going to be on the Venezuelan national team, helping your national team. And he looked at me like, what? It was like something that he always wanted to hear. And at the end of that season, he gets called up and he plays with his national team. And then he's out there playing um, with players that had played in the NBA and representing his country. They, they went through the FIBA qualifiers. And I remember that the, the the instant message that he sent me on Instagram afterwards, he was like, coach, if you wouldn't have believed in me, I would have never be doing this. And I wouldn't be, you know, representing my country and carrying my flag with the success that we had. So stuff like that, you cannot put a price tag on to know that you were part of a young man's journey and success. And uh, I love this kid. And I even let this kid bring his son who was about four years old. He came to every one of our practice and he was like, coaches is okay. I'm like, Hey, let him warm up with us. Let him sit out there and do stretches with us. And now this young man is about nine, 10 years old and he's a little player himself. And I can sit back and be like, I remember watching that kid stretch by his daddy and let them have that bond together. Where to me, you have that culture of family that's where he was comfortable and he didn't have to worry about his son. And then he'd sit there and let his son be a part of it. There's nothing better than stories like that, that make you feel like, you know what, we're in this for the right reasons and we're doing it the right way. That's the truth right there. Now, now before I get into my next question, how many languages do you speak? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I picked up Arabic. I picked up some German. Picked up some Spanish. Now, Mandarin and Cantonese, nah. Not going to happen. <laughs> the success that we had in China was because my translator was so good. And trust me, I give him all the credit because he was like a little mini me. And he actually learned English by watching YouTube videos of, of American coaches. So to him, wow. he gets all the credit. And I just sit back. But yet, he picked up my language, he picked up my terminology quick. I mean, we did everything together. We shopped together. And because of that relationship, that's why we were able to communicate so well. And those players adapted quickly and we had that success. So my, my tongue was so confused so many times. I didn't know what language I was speaking. My brogue was messed up. I'm from Indiana, but I coached in the South. So, man, I, I'm so screwed up sometimes. I don't even know what I'm saying. Blah, 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 blah. But hey, we had fun with it. 
you're, you're doing it. You're, you're talking it well here, so we're loving it, man. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I appreciate it. We're having fun. I'm sure my answers are long-winded, but, man, this is a great time. Oh, no, time. man. I, I honestly – don't don't even worry about any time whatsoever. What what you're giving is gold at this point. I swear, man. The you. insights you're giving right now are, are are the kind of stuff that I know Wayne and me can personally speak on. That it, it's kind of like what we what we live for in sports. You know, seeing the seeing the face value of things is one thing, and and things like that. But getting behind and hearing these kind of stories and pulling the curtain back, like you mentioned, it, is kind of like what I live for in sports. And and to have somebody with your with your vast experience and knowledge and stories is is just amazing. It's, well, like it's I'm saying, I, I'm honored and humbled to uh, to be sharing it with you. I'm having a great time. You guys are uh, awesome. you guys are killing it with your show, man. I'll come back anytime. Awesome, thanks. <laughs> You're up, Wayne. No, it's here. You get the um... – Oh, yeah, the Specialized. Okay. So now to bring it a little back uh, from the nostalgia here, do you think – because I personally do. Do you think specializing is hurting youth sports? Now, I I always did kind of find that, especially with with a lot of my friends and growing up, you know, if you played basketball, you played football, you played baseball, you played all these things. Nowadays, these kids are only playing one sport. They play it year-round. And it's obviously has its benefits, but do you think there's any drawbacks to that? What, what do you, what's your opinion on that take? I'm going to speak from personal experience. Mm-hmm. When I was in high school, I actually earned 13 varsity letters and I was a hall of fame athlete. I was quarterback of the football team all four years in high school. I, I actually had more offers in football cause I was a scrambler, not like a Michael Vick or anything like that, or, you know, some of these guys that you see now, but, uh, you know, Fran Tarkenton, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why you got to throw out a slow white guy like that? Hey, he can move. What do you mean? He was out there moving. <laughs> but I think of how football and the physicality of football actually helped me in basketball because I wasn't afraid to get hit. It also kept me in shape. It also kept me focused because I knew I had to have a certain GPA to stay eligible. I think also all that cross training that you do for different sports also helps you with agility, isometric, plyometrics, and all of the, um, you know, all of the skills that you have to have for as far as motor skills with hand-eye coordination. Uh, then, I, of course, you know, I, I set three school records in track. Uh, Jesus. Represented, represented. Uh, my high school and the state track me. So I feel like when you, when you force kids to specialize in a certain sport, they lose out on those other things. And how do you know that that's what that kid's really where his heart and where his passions at? Let that kid decide where his heart and where his passions are at. And then he will find out if he's motivated to do it, he's going to have success because the passion and the purpose is there. But if other people are living vicariously through him or wanting him to do something, when it's not where his heart is at, he's going to burn out. He's going to get injuries. He's going to get frustrated. And now we may have lost something special in the world of sports. Let these kids play, have fun, learn life lessons and develop those motor skills to help them navigate their way to find out where they're truly passionate or what they really want to do. That's just my opinion. It's personal experience. I I think we're robbing these kids opportunities by making them choose and specialize because what you like, think about it. 
You may have had a girlfriend when you were 16 years old. You're not going to like that same person when you're 30 years old. You're going to grow. You're going to evolve. You're going to be different. So you can't sit there and tell me that something that you like at 14 years old may be something that you're going to like at 21 years old. So let these kids find their passion, find their purpose, and support them once they make that decision with all the resources that they can have. So that way, you know, we can find out. Is that what truly makes them happy? That's where I think some coaches miss miss the boat. Yeah, now I see why you were such a great coach. Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I'm just speaking from experience, and I wanted to treat people the way I wanted to be treated myself. But I think you have to be open-minded and take off the blinders and not have tunnel vision and be like, oh, no, it's this, it's this, it's my way or the highway. No, no, no. Be open-minded, set back, allow the kids to grow, allow the kids to evolve, find out what they like. And then once they come to you and say, hey, this is what I really like, and then be like, okay, how can I as a parent or a coach support him with the, the proper resources so that way they can see how good they can actually become? Now, Coach, sad to say, this is the last question that we have for you, but basically <laughs> – the basically, uh, my question is, I, I'm tweaking it a little bit, which is basically when I say the, the, the basketball fairy comes down and says, coach, I've got every coaching job in America and you can have whichever one you want. Would you take one of those jobs? and Which one would it be? I love it. I, man, I, I dream about basketball fairies every night. Uh, <laughs> what do they look like in your dreams? <laughs> you know, I, I feel like. I've always, I always like a challenge. I always seem could see myself getting with a franchise that has not had a lot of success that is on the come up, but yet, or maybe had success in the past and hasn't had it for years. And then you can be that candle that ignites everybody else's flame. And then you grow and learn and evolve together. But again, that takes a special situation, as we mentioned before, with the right ownership, with the right front office personnel with the right general managers and have those special relationships that allow you the time in this microwave society where they want success yesterday uh, to be a good fit. Um, I love the question. I, I look at the Chicago Bulls right now and think, man, how fun would it be to build the Chicago Bulls back up? Now, I wouldn't want the New York Knicks job right now because <laughs> Nobody I, look would. I, I look at that <laughs> owner and I feel like you know, their success stops right there with him because I don't know if he's allowing them to have the resources that they need. At least the pattern of behavior in most recent years has showed that. Uh, but yet, you, you know, you look at the Miami Heat and what they could become. Uh, you know, you look at the Dallas Mavericks right now with, with Coach Carlisle and what he's doing. But yet, look at that young Sacramento Kings team that could be good. But then look what Monty Williams is doing out there with the Phoenix Suns being undefeated right now in the bubble. What a great job that would be to go in there and just ignite that and blow it up and have fun with it. And then basically carve your own niche and then, you know, say, you know what, now we can pick and choose which job we want. And all of a sudden you're a Will Smith that you don't have to take every movie role that comes up. You can be selective and take the movie role that you want. So that's the best analogy that I could give you. But, um, yeah, you, you brought up Phoenix. I th I personally think I could totally see, like it, the the way your coaching style and you say you with that young core in Phoenix. Ooh. I think would honestly be a lot of fun to watch, man. Man, I you, think 
You give me D Booker and just exactly, let him get man. out of his way and let him play. You got that young core that is around him. They've got a, an up and coming front office that does a great job. Yeah. Man, that's got sexy written all <laughs> over. It, I, I'm not going to lie. Come on, holy cow! <laughs> now I know Wayne said last question, but I do got to get your take just real quick. Sure. What's your take on the bubble right now, and 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 the the style of basketball being played? Do you like what you're seeing? Do you think it's like kind of no defense ish? Like, just what's your quick take on that? Yeah, there's no defense, but kudos to Adam Silver. We have to me. I know I may be a little bit biased, but yeah, we love Adam Silver. He's doing <laughs> it the right way. He's the best major sports commissioner sure. in the nation. Uh, he, he he sat back. He listened. He surrounded himself with the right people that had strengths that were not his. He listened to the players. Um, he collected all the data and science, and then. He gets with those people that created that bubble that twice now they've tested 343 players all come back negative. They're doing it right. Now, don't waver from that. You've got a system in place that works. So don't screw it up by making changes now just because now, you know, you're getting through those first eight games and your playoffs are about to start. So for that, I say great job, Adam Silver. I appreciate you. I respect you. Thank you for allowing the platform for these players to still speak on the platforms that they have. I think that's wonderful. Style of play. Um, I'm not really surprised by any that's going on. I knew Portland was going to come in with Nurkic and with Collins coming in, the seven-footers, because you already had a very talented backcourt. And I told my wife, and I was on other shows saying, uh, be careful because if Portland gets number eight, they're going to scare those L.A. Lakers at number one because they're dangerous. Um, now – style of play i think the shooting is so good because you're in an arena that doesn't have that depth perception and shooters are going to shoot and they're going to score and with the pace that they're playing it's hard to get yourself as a maserati athlete to go from zero to 200 in a short period you have to play your way back into shape because as a coach even though they were doing individual workouts and they may have strength coaches working with them you cannot emulate and you cannot simulate game speed that's why i think the defense is a little bit lacking because i think they're trying to save it for the offensive end because it's an entertaining brand and they're trying to get their buckets but the teams that are going to defend on a neutral site like the clippers who have bench depth and defense i think those teams are going to find success because they can you know wear other teams out and how much energy is the LeBron James going to have to expend to get into the finals before they can get there? You know, can they win four at four and out in, in advance and win four and out in advance and have more time to rest on, on those old bones? So it, there's so many storylines that are coming coming into it that are exciting as a fan this is the respite and the distraction that we needed in america to you know take our minds off of the pandemic and take our minds off of the social injustices and everything that's going on so i'm thrilled as a fan of the game to watch but you know me two minutes in the game my my coaching goggles come on and now i'm playing chess with everybody else playing checkers and i'm dissecting every play and i'm watching rotations and i'm seeing game adjustments and i'm watching sideline out of bounds plays baseline out of bounds plays and i like some things that i'm seeing but i do wish that some of the defense would be better but again i'm not surprised because you're i'm surprised we haven't had more slower nagging injuries from these guys going from zero to 200 quickly and getting right after but i was surprised in that first game when LeBron and them played 34, 36 minutes, I think their competitive juices got going and the coaches couldn't pull back the reins because they were trying to make a statement game. And after that game, you had to sit there and say, well, 
Clippers had to be pretty good psychologically where they were at because they were missing 38 points off the bench in that game, and yet they were still competitive right there with the Lakers. So all these storylines are getting fun, man. (laughs) For me, I'm loving it. I'm sitting there salivating and, you know, being able to have conversations with people who are in the bubble and around the game and with these teams and with these players. Ooh, it's fun, baby. Let's let's start these playoffs, man. Let's go. I gotta say, I mean, Coach, I, we really, really, really loved having you on, and I think that this has been above and beyond anything we either of us could have expected. I think that all of our fans right now have got to be completely sad that this is ending, but I do want to encourage them to go to your podcast, to subscribe to it, to watch every episode, because this is really just a modicon of the insight that you're going to get listening to his show, watching his show, because he is a extremely knowledgeable basketball mind i know everyone kind of looks at me listen guys i'll, I'll take a step back on this one but uh no i, I loved having you on coach i think you were absolutely amazing and I, and I really encourage everybody to go listen to your podcast and i was hoping you can kind of tell them where they can find it well you know what i i, I facebook live stream you know just like what you guys are doing uh if they just go to facebook.com backslash coach sf or just get on facebook and look for the Coach Scott Field Show. It's there. We just now started picking up our subscriptions uh, to the YouTube channel, which is just, again, the Coach Scott Field Show. I've got everything right over my shoulder right there. Twitter, Scott underscore Fields. Uh, Instagram, it's just at Coach Scott Fields. So give me a holler. Shout out me. Uh, you know, a- enjoy the content and the, the interviews that we have. But I also put other content throughout the week where I like to kind of stimulate the fans and interact with fans uh, with different questions throughout the week. So we have a lot of fun with it. I appreciate you guys. But Wayne, man, that story that I heard with you and Jimmy and that one three one sounds to me like you were doing some quality coaching, my man. And Sully, some of them questions that you're coming with, I loved it, baby. <laughs> Jimmy, honestly, yeah, the 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 out the what you gave us was was more than we could have ever expected. You're such a good listen. I'm not gonna lie, man. You're you're so easy to talk to. Your personality is fantastic. Obviously, your knowledge is is out of bounds. Uh, I hope all of our listeners go and subscribe to you. I know I, I'm, I haven't watched the show. I'm gonna tell you right now. You've got a you've got a steady listener from now on, Coach. Appreciate it. I love your listen, man. You really are incredible. Sully, I appreciate that. And again, I'm humbled by that. I, you know, I invite people to come and like and follow and support our show. Ask questions. You know, we do interact after the show is over. Questions will come in. I try to go in and take the time to answer everyone who has a question or a comment. And uh, again, I just think that's fun to have that connectivity with our listeners and our followers. And and I, I make that extra effort to do that. So for you guys to have me on your show, uh, I'm beyond blessed and i appreciate it because it's a lot of fun sharing knowledge and wisdom with guys who know and get it and understand it because you guys are sharing that same wisdom with your with your followers and hey i'm going to be following you guys as well because uh it's great to surround yourself with great people who know and get it because let's admit there's a lot of stuff out there that's saturating that's floating around where people are just on there talking just to hear themselves talking that's yeah yeah i I'd, i'd rather not do that but you guys you guys come with it you got your research you've got your knowledge um, you've got your experiences that you're speaking from and uh, that that stuff's all juicy so it, it's quality stuff guys and I am fans of you all right thanks so thank much you coach so, so much coach really thank you yeah let's get this content out there let's share it on a whole bunch of sports groups and oh, uh, yeah. let's uh, let, let's keep it going I need to have you guys come be a guest on my show and we can chop it up and have some fun too oh 
Oh, I'll for sure. We're, we're definitely going to plan on having you back. I know we and Wayne are going to talk and we'll get Jesse on because I know Jesse's going to have some things to ask you and we would be obviously humbled to be on your show as well. So thank you again, man. Have, have a fantastic night. Hey, listen, these NBA playoffs are getting ready to start. And if you want to get some insights or some behind the scenes looks at what's going on through my perspective of what I'm seeing, hey, let's uh, let's come on and let's talk about NBA playoffs because for me, man, it's just basketball, baby, and it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks again. Thanks, I appreciate you, fellas. Have a great night. Be safe, be blessed, and uh, make good decisions to uh, take care of those around you because it's still a pandemic out there, and we got to be smart. Online, line, Coach. Okay. Stay safe and stay healthy, Coach. Thank you Please. so much. Lace them up, baby. Lace them up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was amazing. I loved having them on. I know we ran a little bit over, but – that that's quality. I don't I don't care if it's thirty four minutes. Like that's people listen to that whole thing. That's amazing. You, you had honestly, if you didn't stay and listen to that whole thing, you, you missed out. He was brilliant. He was so incredible. For sure. I'm just gonna throw up here one more time before we sign off. Obviously, check us out iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. This whole episode because this will not air in its entirety on the network. You're gonna it's no. gonna get cut out. So you gotta download it. You gotta stream it from those places. And we're definitely gonna try to send some traffic Scott's way because uh, he's a really really good listen. He really um, is, yeah. And then, of course, obviously, reach out to us, Infinity Sports Podcast, uh, on Twitter and Insta- or, or Facebook, and then Twitter is Sports Infinity Five. Again, we're going to be trying to steer some traffic towards Scott as well, so you guys can reach out. If you're following us, you can follow him as well. It's definitely, definitely going to be worth it. So uh, I'm excited. Obviously, we're way over. I'm probably going to get in trouble for it, <laughs> but I don't care because it was amazing. So, um, Saul, so you want to throw it to Kenny? Hey, Kenny, where you at, man? <laughs>